Hey there, and welcome to Cosmologies. Join us as we explore the intersections of science, spirit, and the human experience. Are you curious? Let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our planetary deep dive on the planet Mercury. In this episode, we're going to talk all about what makes the first planet in our solar system unique. But because this is cosmologies, not just astronomies, we will also be going beyond the empirical. Named after the Roman messenger god based off of the Greek god Hermes, people the world over have a lot of associations with this planet. Even today, plenty of folks cite Mercury retrograde as the cause for various maladies thrice a year. For that, we'll be consulting with some special guests who will share some history, anthropology, and occult wisdom in our effort to dig deeper into the deities and archetypes associated with Mercury. But first, let's get our feet wet with some straightforward planetary science. At an average of 58 million kilometers away from the sun, Mercury is the innermost planet. However, contrary to popular belief, it isn't actually the hottest. Second planet Venus gets that title due to its extreme greenhouse gas effect. But Mercury has virtually no meaningful atmosphere, so it doesn't really hold on to all that extra heat. That isn't to say that Mercury doesn't get hot. It does. It can get up to 430 degrees Celsius, or 800 degrees Fahrenheit, during the day. But its near-vacuum conditions ensure that the side of Mercury that is facing away from the sun, or the night side, can plummet all the way down to negative 180 degrees Celsius, or negative 290 degrees Fahrenheit. So it also gets pretty cold. However, if you were hoping to treat your stay on Mercury kind of like a sauna, jumping from hot to cold to hit an average, you'd still be in for a bad time. It takes 59 Earth days for Mercury to completely rotate on its axis, so it spins very slowly. But it's actually even more complicated than that. Being the closest to the Sun means that Mercury also has the fastest orbit, at just 88 Earth days. And having a day that is two-thirds the length of the year has some pretty funky consequences. As in, a full day and night cycle on Mercury would have the sun appearing to rise back and forth in the morning, then set back and forth at night, and it would take 176 Earth days or two Mercurian years. But why is the year so short? If we think of our solar system as a racing track, that seems to make sense. The interior runner has less ground to cover and can complete their lap faster than any of the others. But there's actually more to it than that. Mercury is also the swiftest moving planet, or in our analogy, actually the fastest runner. Unlike the runners in the analogy, the velocity of the planets has to do with their mass and their distance from the sun. There's a bit more to it than this, but Basically, the closer a planet is to the sun, the more strongly they're affected by the sun's gravity and the faster they can go. To compare, 
Mercury is traveling at 47 kilometers per second, Earth travels around 30 kilometers per second, and furthest planet Neptune moves at just around five and a half kilometers per second. We'll talk about this swiftness again a bit later. Like Earth, Mercury also has its own gravity, which determines how much you weigh there or how difficult it is to launch out of its orbit. Mercury has about 38% of Earth's gravity, which means that if you weighed 100 kilograms on Earth, you would weigh 38 kilograms on Mercury. Americans go ahead and substitute kilograms for pounds. They're very different measurements, but it's the same idea. As a side note, I'm trying to use metric measurements, as most science is done in metric. However, I live in America, and most science communication here is done in imperial measurements, which means that not all of my good comparisons will land. Also, big space numbers are hard to comprehend, so I try to use analogies whenever possible. So, in the interest of giving visual analogies, if Earth is the size of an American nickel, Mercury is about the size of a blueberry, or roughly one-third the size, which makes it just larger than our moon. It just happens to work out that our one-third-sized planet also has one-third of the gravity, or mass. The same cannot be said for our quarter-sized moon, or half-sized Mars. A planet's mass definitely has something to do with its size, but it also has a lot to do with what it's made out of. For example, a paper ball will have less mass than a metal ball of the same size. But Mercury seems right on par, and is the second densest planet after us, which is why scientists believe that it has a very similar structure to the Earth, with a molten metal interior, a relatively thin rocky mantle, and the crust we all see. And that crust looks a lot like the crust of our moon. In fact, Unless you know either one very well, a mere glance at one could fool you into thinking you're looking at the other. Both have been battered and beaten by countless impacts from asteroids and comets. This is, again, due to the negligible atmosphere that would cushion it from these blows, or erase the evidence of past impacts. But it seems like what little gas there is here is constantly being stripped away by intense solar winds. The craters on Mercury are all named after deceased authors, musicians, and artists, and some of the craters that are constantly in shadow near the poles may contain some water ice. There are additional geographic features, such as cliffs, that appear to be caused by the contracting of the crust as the planet cools. Another way in which Mercury can look like our moon is that it goes through phases, as does Venus and all other inner solar system objects. On the far side of their orbit around the sun, they reflect light to us, and on the near side, they don't. So while it's in between, they reflect a little bit. Mercury also has some somewhat intense magnetic field tornadoes and no moons. We do not believe there is any possibility for life to have evolved in such extreme conditions. Mercury is a planet that is visible to the naked eye, but because it is so close to the sun, it's often very difficult for us to see. Nevertheless, it's been observed since antiquity. 
Nobody has ever been to Mercury, and it is the least robotically explored of the inner planets. In the 1970s, Mariner 10 photographed nearly half of the surface in three flybys, and in the late aughts, the Messenger orbiter arrived and did two flybys before dropping into a four-year orbital mission where it delivered some stunning photography. In 2018, the European Space Agency and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency launched orbiter Bepi Colombo, which should enter Mercury's orbit in 2025 after doing a bunch of gravity-assist flybys of the interior planets. I've got a few more exciting Mercury planet facts, but I think it's high time we met our guests. As a quick reminder, neither I nor any of my guests can claim to have all of the answers. We're all students with vastly different lived experiences and courses of study, and we're all in different places on our journeys. So, without much ado... Hi, thank you, Natalie. Uh, I'm Robert, he, him pronouns. I am a pantheist neo-pagan. Um, which basically means that I consider God, the divinity, to be the sum total of all the forces of the universe, um, and whether or not choose to name that or look at that in a specific way depends on my mood. Um, and I do also consider that as a subset of that, there are many archetypes that we can interact with in different ways, um, which we sometimes would refer to as gods or goddesses or just call archetypes or whatever. Hi, I'm Doc. Uh, I he, him pronouns. I am a professional astrologer with background in Druidry and Wicca, particularly the Alexandrian sort. I also have experience in uh, some magical orders, uh, but primarily Druidry and Wicca. Uh, I am also very fascinated in the idea of the gods as archetypes, as nodes within us that we work through using magic and art as a way of accessing those particular nodes. Um, and Hermes Mercury is definitely one of those that are pretty important to us in the magical community. Some of you may remember Doc from our episode about the Grand Conjunction in December. Doc and Robert and I sat down a couple weeks ago to have a little bit of a Messenger God roundtable. It's worth noting that we tend to talk a lot when we're together and that our conversation was a long one. It's also worth noting that my internet connection was extremely unstable and that they dropped a lot of knowledge that I wasn't able to salvage from the recording, so I might be filling in the gaps every once in a while. To begin, I asked our guests about some of the associations they commonly think of when it comes to Mercury. Here's Robert. So Mercury is interesting is interesting in a number of ways. It's like that Mer Mercury does some things that none of our other Western god forms do. And one of the most obvious from the standpoint of how the mysticism and the spirituality dovetails with science is that Mercury is the only sort of major god form or I guess even minor god form that we have um, in the Western mysteries that ends up both in the planetary data table and also the periodic table. And specifically in reference to that God. And we could, we could argue uh, that, you know, the sun, uh, Helios, helium, but that's kind of a stretch. But Mercury, unambiguously, you know, the planet Mercury and yeah, the element Mercury, Quicksilver, are meant to be related to 
the Roman god form. And so I think it's interesting that uh, that Mercury alone uh, fills both that microcosmic and macrocosmic role uh, going back be well before the Renaissance. For as far as like, you know, dovetailing with Western mysteries. So the god Mercury uh, is correlated is course is traditionally corresponded in Tarot, for example, with the magician, which is card number one, but card number one is really letter number two in the Hebrew alphabet, which is where this comes from, right? So Mercury equals the magician equals bet equals number two, which also equals the number one in the Tarot. And in the in Kabbalah, in the Tree of Life, the 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 bet pathway uh, links Kesin and Chokmah. But then Mercury as Quicksilver is atomic number 80. 80 happens to be one of our larger numbers that is correlated to, because it's in multiple of 10, it's one of our numbers that is correlated to the Hebrew alphabet. And so in the Hebrew alphabet, 80 is Pei, and Pei is in Tarot the tower, and the tower is Mars. So we see through the link but between astronomy and chemistry that the planet Mercury and the planet Mars are concordant. Now, this comes back to the idea of Mercury as a trickster god, I think. Um, it could also come back to the idea of simply overthinking the numerology, but they are one and the same. And you know, so we're talking about Mercury, whether they're talking about, you know, the you know, the FTD guy with the flowers and the wings on his feet, or we're talking about the planet, we're talking about the stuff that you break out of your mom's thermometer um, when they're not looking because it's only toxic if you didn't know that. But the idea, the ideology is the same and it carries through all of them. And so you see through uh, through the, the various pathways of the, the Western mysteries that Mercury by its nature is mercurial. It changes aspect in ways that really nothing else does in our Western cosmologies. And, and that jives with both what we see with the, the element Quicksilver and what we see with the, our innermost planet. So Robert's referring to a few sets of numbers here. The first set is the numbers assigned to the major arcana cards in a tarot deck. There are 22 of these numbered from 0 to 21, and they're each meant to represent an archetype or a stage of a journey. The other set of numbers he's referencing for the non-chemists among us is the periodic table, or the way that scientists organize the known elements that make up all things. Even though our modern periodic table was created by four separate scientists in the 1860s, the Greeks have been using the words element and atom to describe differences between things for thousands of years. Just to be clear, the numbers in this table are not assigned arbitrarily. The elements are arranged by atomic weight, or the total number of protons and neutrons in the atom, and their atomic number, in this case 80, is the number of protons in the nucleus of each atom. Again, the associations might just come down to overthinking numerology, but that number can't be changed. We also see that this mercury archetype is where we get the word mercurial. It's always changing or has the power to change. It's notable too that we've called mercury a trickster god. 
we'll also find references to him as a messenger, as well as a psychopomp, or a god that can travel between the worlds, specifically to the underworld, and where he can lead souls upon death. Let's dig into some of those archetypes a bit more. The idea of Mercury as the messenger of the gods, and I'll, I'll, I'll hit the distinction between the messenger god and messenger of the gods because i think the distinction is important and in different cultures have treated that in different ways i tend to see it more as messenger of the gods than a messenger god although there's that thing going on as well um but as messenger of the gods why was the planet mercury the messenger of the gods well because the planet mercury is the one planet in our solar system that is definitely going to be conjunct with every other planet every year at least once for listeners who weren't with us during our Grand Conjunction episode, a conjunction is what happens when one planet appears to swing past another one from our point of view on Earth. But it's all about perspective. The planets might still be very far apart and might not actually be at their closest lapping point. Venus likely will too, but Venus is so bright and so bold that we have all kinds of other associations with Venus. But Mercury... And, and you're going to see Venus is going to have like maybe one or two less conjunctions a year just at the other at the end of the year. But because they're both inferior planets, you're going to get as the Earth goes around the sun and the inferior planets also go around the sun faster than we do that as we go around the sun, we're going to find Mercury being conjunct with all the other specifically all the other uh, superior planets. Whereas we get out to, you know, and we're going to see this through. So mostly true with Venus for the same reason that we get out as to Mars and this you're only going to have with Mars in 2021 the other than Mercury and Venus which they conjuncts with you know every time they zip around the sun as we zip around the sun the only other conjunction Mars has in 2021 to my knowledge and Doc can correct me on this is Uranus and that was last week I don't think Mars has any other conjunctions this year um, you see the same thing with Jupiter and Saturn and then the dark things we don't see very well so, so that's one aspect of it that in the, as we observe it in the sky, that Mercury is going to conjunct, it's going to connect with all of the other gods, all the other planets all the time. And that's just function of it being in the most inferior orbit, right? Any other star system, the most inferior planet is going to do that. We did, this just happens to be ours for which we are grateful. So from our point of view, it will appear as if the planet Mercury is visiting all of the other planets at some point throughout the year. Also, remember how Mercury is the fastest of all the planets? A messenger needs to be swift. This speed could lend itself to the popular archetypal imagery of a god with winged sandals. Similarly, because it is the most inferior orbit, as simply as a function of it being the most inferior orbit, on the average throughout the year, Mercury is closer to Earth than any other planet. And that the first time I heard that, the first time that was explained to me, which was by a, a happened to be by an astrophysicist at NASA, just dropped it casually in conversation. I was like, wait a minute, that's not true. Venus is. But over the year, we are closer, physically closer to Mercury than we are any any other planet. Similarly, every other planet in the solar system is also closer to Mercury than any other planet. And that's just a function of nearly circular orbits going around a central sun. 
Now, as ridiculous as this sounds, Robert is totally spot on here about Mercury being the closest planet to everyone, including us. It might help to think about it this way. You have two good friends. One of them lives in your neighborhood, and the other one lives across town. However, the friend who lives in your neighborhood happens to own a camper van and spends half the year working remote and exploring the national parks. Lucky them. Technically, you still live closer to the neighborhood friend, but on average, you're usually much closer to the friend who lives across town. And again, this is going to be equally true for any other star system anywhere that are the innermost planet is going to be the closest to all the other gods and is going to be closest, is going to be the one that actually conjuncts with all the other gods, no matter what else is happening in the sky. And that's just simply by function of geometry. And I find it interesting that wherever you, wherever you find a civilization that is enough like ours, that they look up in the sky and at some point in their evolution, name the moving, moving stars as gods, that probably their innermost planet is going to be by some peoples in that civilization thought of as a messenger. But also, many, many, many societies will never have even seen it because it's going to be so close to that star, just like Mercury is so close to our sun. I have personally only observed Mercury less than 10 times in my lifetime. And, you know, by that, I mean, you know, it's like, oh, this, this week I can see it. And I go out every night that week and looking at Mercury. But as far as, or that morning, but as far as like actual ins individual instances of seeing Mercury, very few. Very few. It's just you know, usually not in a place where you can see it. Um, it's actually impressive to me that the ancients of some cultures were able to see it enough to be able to recognize that it was uh, it was another wandering star and doing the things that they did. That people like Ptolemy and Aristarchus were able to look at that and make meaningful ephemerides for this thing that they might only see for a couple days out of the year if they're lucky. So. To reiterate for beginning stargazers, you'll never find Mercury in the middle of the evening sky. It does tight little circles around the sun, which means that from our vantage point, it will be up in the day with the sun, but it will only ever be visible on the horizon right before sunrise or just after sunset. The same is true of Venus, but less so since its orbit is a bit larger. I think it's notable that the, the civilizations that include mercury in their cosmologies are flat you uh, flat or or co or coastal you don't see a lot of like you don't see you know like the great himalayan mysteries of mercury you know it's just maybe somebody on top of the mountain but if you're down in the valley you're, you never knew there was a planet there right you'll see venus but mercury's never more than 18 degrees over the horizon no matter wherever you are so i think that's notable that was a big part of it robert i wanted to say that as i did research for uh hermes years ago um only really the only culture that really had a lot written about it were the Aztecs that uh, mm -hmm. besides Western Western culture that I could find to an ex to a great extent I am sure other equatorial nations have different names uh, because there were there were brief chances to catch a glimpse of Mercury just at the beginning of the horizon in those parts of the world and um, in the case of Mercury I found it fascinating that the Borgia manuscript uh, so, from our Codex Borgia from uh, the Aztec culture for some beautiful reason that's very similar to Hermes uh, for us, they associated that planet with Zolotl. 
the dog who was the god of the dead who guarded the the dead and also helped them move as psychopomp. So again, you have these psychopomp themes, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more later. But also <laughs> along along the lines of the psychopomp theme, you have the you know like we were talking about the correlate the Egyptian correlation with Tahuti, but Mercury is also correlated with Anubis, which is also the the jackal and the psychopomp. And uh, I think I think there's there's a lot of interesting good reasons for it, obviously, because it's obviously so physically close to the sun. Um, it's interesting to me, I would I have not done a study of this, and this is more maybe up uh, Natalie's lane, but I would be very curious to see what the latitude is of cultures that have astrological or astronomical association with the planet Mercury, because on, I mean, so like in the tropics, planets are setting you know vertically essentially rising and setting vertically so you're going to have more more elevation but also as you get further away from the equator you're going longer periods of twilight where it's going to be setting more diagonally and so you'll have actually more time elevated than it would in the tropics where you know it's what is it where the sun comes up like thunder on the road to mandalay because that's what happens in the tropics. You, you get these like boom, flash uh, twilights because everything is shooting straight up and straight down. That's roughly east or west. So I'm curious as to know where you were talking about Mexico and we, Mexico and Egypt and you know all these places that are tr at least tropical, um, tropical or subtropical. Uh, I I believe Hawaii. I believe I believe the Hawaiians had um, some mythology associated with Mercury as well. But again within certainly within the two tropics um and that doesn't surprise me but i find it interesting i'm spooked out in a good way about it <laughs> i personally haven't been able to find any stories about mercury in hawaii other than as an important navigational star but that isn't to say that other polynesian people don't have stories because they do specifically i found that the maori people of new zealand do incorporate huero or mercury as a member of the celestial family of light there are probably other stories there too this leads into another interesting point which is that not all cultures who were big stargazers really incorporated the planets in general into their cosmologies and this also sometimes has to do with latitude. And while we don't go into that much more here, Doc tells us that latitude might have an effect on the types of associations made with gods. The Jungians have actually looked into this question about Mercury and astropsychology, and they've discovered that the further north you go, the less, the less you have an association with a trickster equals psychopomp guide like for example take for example in the norse pantheon odin is the rough equivalent to tahuti thoth hermes mm -hmm. but it's not quite a fit right odin's not quite that uh, hermes is closer to say loki but then again you have a problem loki's not quite that either so you get um, loki is the trickster but not the psychopomp like raven is trickster but not psychopomp exactly that's 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 just one example you find this, that's interesting you find this in russian culture uh you find this in slavic paganism as well with their various deities the psychopomp is not the same as the trickster but as further mm -hmm. south you go um you find a little bit more of a correlation between what that trickster and psychopomp 
as well as communications god, those three things together mm -hmm. seem to have a bit more of a correlation with each other. So it, it, uh, the work was done by Ed, Edward Edinger in the 70s. Notably, the Norse do have a minor messenger god named Hermod, who has a name very similar to Hermes, although the etymology isn't entirely clear. And a lot of folks who work with Norse-Germanic deities will work with Odin's ravens as messengers instead. But again, there aren't really any correlations with trickster or psychopomp with Hermod. I think what Edinger's point was in his, uh, his manuals were more like, this is not to be it's, it's a they're, they're still there there's still some correlation it just seems to be a little a little less spot on because that stuff about zolotl and then you find in africa the connection with papa legba um and his being the one you call out to first when you do rituals to papa legba and his yoruba equivalents is very similar in high magic how we call out to tahuti or thoth when we begin working mm -hmm. Uh, when we begin working anything in high magic, um, the importance there is very similarly linked. Well, I'm so I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, because we were we were you know looking at the Greco-Roman, uh, looking at the Greco-Roman Hermes Mercury as as trickster, but also god of thieves and assassins and you know which you know again makes sense astronomically as the thing that you only barely see in the sky and you only barely see it over here in sky and sometimes it's in the morning sometimes it's in the evening and you you never you never know where it's going to pop up next um and i can see why that becomes you know why that becomes in the mediterranean west of egypt you get the associations with the trickster, the thief, the assassin, you know, the whatever he's doing wrong, you know, he's doing it quickly and stealthily. You know, it's, like, it's also in the in the Western Mediterranean, you really get the association of the messenger god that becomes culturally a god of not just thievery, but also commerce this is where we get the words mercantile and merchants and, you know, all these, all these things come from Mercury, from and where we get hermetically, like like jars sealed. I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure Doc does. Uh, but you know, so like, so you see Mercury or Hermes becoming a patron divinity for uh, travelers, for mer you know, traveling merchants and uh couriers and and you know ftd florists and whatever else which i can see i mean i if you know personal gods of an industry were a major thing today probably airline pilots would you know airline pilots and i don't know maybe you know underhanded stock traders would you know be making homage to mercury i don't know i don't know how that would work out but um you know, for like as for myself as as a mariner, you know, we have lots and lots of gods of the sea, but there aren't that many gods of traveling not over water. And Mercury kind of subsumes all those things. So, you know, god of thieves and postal carriers. And again, I think I think that's purely astronomical. But but we don't see that in Egypt. We don't see that in uh, as Natalie was talking. We don't really see that aspect in more polar uh, latitudes, north or south. 
As I mentioned, the three of us tend to talk a lot, so at this point we veered a bit off the Mercury rails into discussing other bright objects and their importance and prominence around the world, and some other exciting paleoastronomy theorization. But I eventually asked Doc about some of his additional associations with Mercury as an astrologer. This actually really fascinates me when you were um, mentioning what our topics were. What was funny to me in my mind, I was thinking, well, as, as occultists, uh, we have these different positions in our head for where Hermes sits. We have planetary Mercury, you have alchemical Mercurius, you have Hermes as uh, the figure in the Emerald Tablet that you, you read and you do rituals to when you're in a Hermetic Lodge. And these are all related. They're not separate, but they're, they're slightly different. So you've got these three different aspects to Hermes that make it so uh, ambivalent. And <laughs> so about the astrological part, yeah. So we've got, as uh, folks who study astrology know, we've got three retrograde cycles per year usually. We just started our uh, apparent retrograde motion yesterday uh, for the first of 2021. Uh, I, I wanted to point out something really interesting, what Robert mentioned earlier, that uh, atomic number 88 being Mercury, I had completely forgotten. Mercury is also associated with um, the tree of life in Kabbalah with Hod, the number, the eight spherot. And I thought that was really interesting because you could reduce that to eight as well in the chart. And I never made that connection before until Robert mentioned it. So I'm like, whoa. Well, and also uh, the 80 being the tower is the path between Hod and Geberah. Yes. That also blew my mind considering their, their connection. And, and the fact, that when you think about it, it's very much like the story of Hermes, right? Because Hermes is not so much concerned necessarily with uh, abundance or good things happening to you. It's simply about whatever is swift and needed quickly and efficiently. Um, so it's that neutral body. So curious things about Mercury. Uh, it's ruled by, it rules Gemini and Virgo. It's happiest in Virgo, that's where its exaltation point is. Uh, it has its detriment in Sagittarius and Pisces. Uh, its fall is also in Pisces, which is the sign, our, the sun sign that we're about to be in here shortly. Um, and it has a lot to do with the third house. So, I mean, that's siblings, transportation, early environment, short distance travel. That's where you find Mercury in that part of your chart or in a chart for like a mundane astrology event. You're looking at the third house and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a little bit more intense because this is Mercury's home, uh, that along with the sixth. Um, so, yeah. The sixth house being health, diet, exercise, employment, hobbies, enrichment. Let me go back to the, the flower guy logo for FTD flowers, and it's like, <laughs> it's like, um, the the you get the the, sh the the winged shoes and that idea of like uh, health as well with the me medical field and how you see the caduceus and the Asclepius in the medical field. So interesting connection there. So here, Doc is referring to the Staff of Hermes, also known as the Caduceus. This wand, or rod as it's also called, has wings on the top and is flanked on the handle by two intertwining snakes. You may recognize this as a symbol that occurs frequently in medical imagery. This is actually really interesting because Hermes is not traditionally associated with healing, but Asclepius is the god of medicine, and his staff looks very similar, a rod with no wings and just one snake. 
This misusage probably became popular and widespread due to the U.S. Army Medical Corps adopting Hermes's caduceus as their symbol in 1902, and then proliferated from there. And studies have found that commercial healthcare companies are much more likely to misuse the caduceus than their professional healthcare association counterparts, who are mostly using the rod of Asclepius. But let's get back to Doc. Robert, you already mentioned the Merchants and Mercury uh, link and the fact that Marche, Wednesday, the middle of the week, Mercury's day. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, Woden, and Woden's day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woden also being uh, being correlated, corresponded to Mercury. Absolutely. In other languages as um, well, you have uh, the Miraculous in Spanish. Mm-hmm. All of those things, having that Wednesday I mean, the joke now, of course, hum- I mean, it's hump day. It's the middle of the week. I always kind of thought that as my coworkers who are not at all magical, when I have them, it's like, oh, it's hump day for you. It's it's Mercury's day for me. This is the day to channel into that and have a, you know, it's like, okay. Um, as one way to kind of like get away from the whole hump day thing. But yeah, so really curious stuff about Mercury uh, to me anyway, as an astrologer is like we have... Mercury rules the two signs that are mutable. So again, we have that alchemical ambivalence. You have two mutable signs that it rules. All the other planets have either a cardinal or a fixed. So Venus has a cardinal and a fixed. Jupiter has a cardinal and a fixed. Mars has a cardinal and a fixed. Mercury is the only one in classical astrology, knowing the later three planets we have at the end of our solar system right now, is the only one that has two mutable signs. So again, you have that theme of the the transport media, the thing that connects all of the things together. So I thought that was really fascinating about Mercury, and it comes up often. So at this point, we're finally going to talk a bit about that often cited Mercury retrograde. When we say that a planet is retrograde, we mean that it is appearing to move backwards in the sky. For the most part, planets will slowly move to the east of their background stars, but when a planet is retrograde, it will appear to move west of them. But just like conjunctions, this retrograde is all about appearances. Imagine our planetary racetrack one more time. If we were to fly off of the Earth and look down at our solar system so that we could see the northern hemisphere of the Earth, we would see all of the planets moving the same direction, counterclockwise around the Sun. The Earth and Mercury are both moving counterclockwise at all times, just at different speeds. Retrograde is actually just a really interesting illusion that happens because of circle geometry. That's why it's often called apparent retrograde. And to be clear, all planets can appear to be retrograde from our perspective, It's just a lot more extreme with our inner planets. Because we can see pretty much the entire orbital path of Mercury, we can see it moving normally when it passes behind the Sun, and then apparently backwards when it passes between us and the Sun. Almost half of its orbit. And because it's moving so fast, we see this happen about three times a year. Or we would if we were lucky enough to see it. 
There's also a period of time right around the end and beginning of retrograde that astrologers like to call the shadow period, which is when Mercury appears to slow down, stand still, and switch directions. This is also an illusion and is just Mercury coming around the sun towards us. Regardless of whether Mercury is actually moving abnormally, these periods of time catch a lot of flack. Popular opinion is that Mercury retrograde is a time when communication can be lacking, or when technology or transportation can tend to break down. I will say um, one of the things that has calibrated that is that no matter how skeptical I am of things things astrological, um, I recognize that when Mercury is retrograde, things go sideways more so than when it's not. And, and more, it's, it's one of those things that um, scientifically I'm uncomfortable with astrology, but empirically I recognize when it's so um, such a brick bat that I can't possibly pretend to ignore it. Um, And, and, and again, you know, you said, you know, visually retrograde, obviously Mercury doesn't go retrograde. It's always going the same direction, but visually retrograde from earth it shouldn't matter it's simply a function of our perspective and yet it really does you know the 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 breakdown in communications the breakdown in things it really does empirically seem to be more so during times especially at the beginning and end but the the when you're just beginning or just ending on either side of it and during and during it also there really does seem to be empirically anecdotally uh, there seems to be something going on there. And, um, and it is one of the things that gives me that, it's like, gives me that there's something real happening here that forces me to challenge my uh, preconceptions. Unfortunately, our technology too was being, as Robert called it, a brickbat here. So we've missed a bit of what Doc said next. But we also talked about this in our conjunctions episode about the various ways in which we might be able to reconcile these ideas. Doc says a lot of astrologers these days don't actually believe that the planets themselves are responsible for all this or that they're beaming any kind of energy that affects us in any way. So maybe astronomy isn't the science we're after. But perhaps it could have something to do with psychology. On one hand, it could possibly be the Bader-Meinhof effect, or a frequency illusion, where after someone points out that Mercury is in retrograde, you start seeing evidence of it everywhere. It could also be part egregore, where a concept arises and enough people believe in the power of that concept for a long enough time that we sort of co-create it into existence, such as patriotism, gender performance, or superstition in general. The planets are also powerful ancient symbols to our species, and symbolism is super powerful in psychology, so maybe it's an internal science we're after. Or maybe it's something else. But I did manage to salvage some of Doc's perspective on another way to interpret retrograde. So Robert, you already mentioned the first of the mercurial cards, the one that we always recognize for the magus, Mm -hmm. the initiator the one in which starts all of the magical processes. Um, In tarot, you have two other cards in the major arcana that I wanted to touch on. There's a lot about the minor and the decans. I won't won't get into that because that's like a whole other 
two hours, but I just wanted to focus really quickly on something that you mentioned about Mercury's ambivalence. So the lover's card is our first big uh, Mercury card after Hermes, after the mages. And you have it uh, traditionally set as, uh, as Mercury in Cancer. So what's interesting is when people draw the lover's card, they think it has something to do always with literal lovers, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your androgynous paramour, your uh, your polycule, your polycule, right? But when you really study tarot, you begin to see it's actually not really about that sp explicitly. It's about choice. It's um, in fact the hermetic title that Levy gave us is the, the Lord of Choice, and that is kind of its its main thing. You see Adam and Eve, presumably in the Rider Waite Smith version, mm -hmm. separated by the uh, the river uh, in Genesis. You've got them there. There's Eve is is discussing with we presume to be the angel Gabriel, but could be a different angel. We're not quite sure. And Adam's over here like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But clearly there's something here that's not it's not settled. It's not harmonious. Something is going on that says in the scene, maybe there's it's not quite what we think it is. And that, I think, is a perfect sign for me of what Mercury retrograde actually is. It's that moment of like, hey, wait, we need to stop and sort this out. <laughs> We need to figure out what's going on. There's a there's a choice here that we have to make, and it's a very important one. And that's where you get this a lot of the other aspects that go along with that card. It's like, where are we going to go to next? And yeah, I I just thought that that was really interesting that you mentioned earlier about that aspect of Mercury retrograde still occurring these conflicts even still. And this is like the very first big one for Mercury. <laughs> well, and you know. Going back to the idea of Mercury as the messenger, you know, going back to pre-Renaissance, even pre-medieval times, um, thinking about the role of the messenger in, in politics and in warfare, you know, in the Mediterranean, especially, very frequently, a a messenger would be a slave, and a so you would have a slave who would be entrusting this you know the the king the general whoever it is is entrusting this information this mission critical information to this slave for whom your victory may not be in their best interests and it allows for subterfuge it allows again you know coming back to the trickster the thief the assassin it allows for subterfuge and the trust of the agent that is both delivering your message and is capable of subterfuge and has the agency to create it. The messenger has agency far beyond their normal station. And I think that that is really important when we're talking about this archetype. This week we've seen the, uh, the stuff with GameStop. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that the fact that we are like just becoming, we're just going into Mercury retrograde. I'm sorry, I don't, there's, there's a terminology for when you're just on the edges of that. You know, we're seeing this thing where the plebeian or the slave who has the agency above their station to, because of the role as messenger, they're able to disrupt that. And I, and I see that and not all, not all of the archetypes of Mercury or Hermes have this, but that, but many of them do. And I find that to be, an interesting sort of as below, so above, in the middle, whatever thing. Yes. 
you raise an extremely good point about that because of how the events in the last week have occurred. Um, I've always, um, in terms of like that, that shadow period happening and going retrograde just now, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts astrologically always, but there's a couple of things that professional astrologers have been looking at this month about that whole debacle. But the thing that I, I'm looking at is that while you have a full moon, the same day this week, that a majority of the stocks go cattywampus with those uh, short-sold stocks. You also have the moon being trine Mercury starting on Monday, and then it continues and goes down and then back up again with moon square Mars. And then that, that coincides with the Mercury retrograde period. So you get that occurring right at the time the full moon and Mercury retrograde are happening. <laughs> so... Um, Meanwhile, the stuff of Wall Street, I think, has more to do with Mars and Uranus, which is a whole other podcast. But I I think all those things are related, probably, somehow. Um, the thing that I was thinking about from your talk a moment ago, Robert, was the idea of this, the, the second, I mean, the third card we have in the Major Arcana that deals specifically with Hermes. You have the Hermit, of course. And you were mentioning mm -hmm. about the voice often given to uh usually slaves in the ancient world and you're absolutely right that was absolutely the case that they were expected to be the messengers because these these guys weren't expected to necessarily come back alive they were just expected to go and give the message and you know hopefully you may come back who knows um and you made me think of the fact that when you have virgo ruling you have virgo and mercury with this card specifically you have and his you actually have his hermetic title which is gives you a clue. And you were describing a moment ago, something that just made me click about this card. They have the hermetic title, which is prophet of the eternal magus of the voice of power. And that was, that was kind of interesting to me because you're going to have that Mercury comes up here. It is Mercury in Virgo this time. And it has that prophetic aspect of the messenger. And it's from the, the least likely person you think is going to be giving you this message. This guy lives out in the hills. <laughs> It's not going to necessarily be coming down to say something unless he means to. Um, but when this archetype comes out, it's like, that's when you, that's just like, okay, now Mercury has come out of the earth, literally with Virgo archetypally to, to give you some kind of message that is valuable to you. And it's very private and personal, which is often how this card is interpreted when you do, uh, when you do draws for yourself. So it's an interesting correlation to Mercury when you were talking about earlier with the, the, uh, ancient worlds uh scribes that had to go out or not scribes but the uh, uh the couriers couriers yes speaking of scribes though mercury hermes is also sometimes seen as a scribal deity sometimes called the first wordsmith which can again tie back to the trickster mesopotamian god of literacy scribes and wisdom Nabu is also associated with Mercury. Some writers I know of, including myself, will sometimes look to Mercury for help getting the juices flowing. But there are plenty of other muse deities out there. The British Isles don't have direct analogs to Mercury, but they do have some scribes. Both of my two, I guess, muse divinities um, are Bridget, whose holiday is nearly upon us. Um, as the poet, um, but also uh, Kerpra, which, uh, so um, I don't know if you guys have in your other broad podcasts have talked about 
uh, the concept of the, the UPG, um, the unverified personal gnosis, uh, which is a polite way of saying um, there's no there's no sourcing for this. I'm making it up, but I've experienced it personally in ways um, because uh, because Gnostic and I'm using Gnostic liturgy, uh, Gnostic uh, spirituality should be personal experience, right? That's otherwise, you know, why bother doing it? Um, so like anything I say about Kerpra as Mercury or Kerpra as Hermes is literally UPG. It's not, it's not written down anywhere. I haven't even written it down anywhere. This is just how I experience that. Um, but um, so the, the corollary that I see, part of the corollary that I see with Kerpra, who Kerpra and Bridget are, bo are both poet divinities or demi-divinities. Bridge is clearly a divinity. Kerpra, it's never quite clear. Um, in Irish mythology, there's really no, not a good distinction between gods and demigods and divinities and, and fairies. They're all just kind of a blur and humans are somewhere in that blur. Um, but where Bridget is clearly a goddess and then when she became Christianized, she became, you know, a, a comic book superhero uh, which is bizarre but and funny, but true. Kerpra was never that. Kerpra was a bard. His bard his a, a bard whose dad was a god. Um, his father was Ogma, um, Ogma, but never took his godhood seriously and actually thought that his godhood, the whole title of godhood was kind of dumb. And um, didn't take people who worshiped him seriously. The whole idea with Kerpra was that if you, if Kerpra caught you worshiping him, he would, he would, uh, mess with you gently, but nonetheless would like find ways to, you know, as a trickster, trickster deity or demi deity or whatever. Um, he, he just thought the whole worship thing was silly. And, Mercury is kind of like that, you know, Kerpra is not seen, Kerpra is not seen as the bard, uh, is not seen as god of the bards, Kerpra is the bard of the gods, and Mercury in the same way is the messenger of the gods more than the god of the messengers, although plays both of those roles. Um, I personally find Kerpra to be more benign, more benevolent than Hermes or Mercury, um, I really, I'm really not that comfortable working personally with the Greco-Roman godforms, especially the male Greco-Roman godforms. They're just um, ethically different. There's just, there's just a lot of there, and and it's it's and it is purely cultural. There is, um, it's but they're but they they do not jive well with my 21st century ethics. Um, whereas, and not all of the not all the Celtic godforms do either. But uh, but the idea that the that, that these demi demi divinities are not weren't weren't meant to be worshipped necessarily and uh, and personally got um, the archetype would get uncomfortable with being worshipped because they thought it was silly. I groove on that. I, I like the idea of uh, of a divinity who doesn't take themselves that seriously um, because trickers, you know, that 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 can be part of the trickster thing and 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 Kerpra I think manifests that that trickster poet writer energy very well. Um, if I'm doing more serious writing though I usually do work more with Bridget because I am more comfortable with her.
I share that with you, Robert, relating to your experience with the Celtic gods. Um, in Druidry, we have, we give Perkirpa a similar role. Um, it's very funny how in Druidic rules, we'll, we will, at least in the Druid order that we were in, we would have uh, a blend between Agmals uh, and Kirpra, the son and the father. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting in the stories, you find oftentimes that it's not so important that they one begets the other. Especially in Celtic myth, you find it's not so important that son, this person was the son or the god or the daughter of so and so. They're almost more like emanations in the way, mm -hmm. in the way that how one thinks of stages or processes and alchemy. It's like this is another form. This is not necessarily worse or better. We have, we have another evolution. Speaking of, let's talk about consorts and counterparts. It just so happens for this. For, uh, for this uh, particular interview, we I, I was doing research on this, and I went back to some of my old favorite literature from high school about Greek myth, and I came across my book by the famous uh, Hungarian his, uh, classicist uh, Karoli Karenyi. He was the writer mm -hmm. of The Gods of the Greeks, Dionysus, the uh, uh, various forms of Eleusinian mysteries. Those were like the only Eleusinian mystery books that were available to us in paperback uh, way back when. So mm -hmm. um, he had a very interesting theory. He talks about how Hermes um, is not just the son of Zeus, but the first evocation of perhaps the purely masculine principle through the feminine. Meaning he he's saying that Hermes was the consort to the earlier earth goddesses of Northern Greece Mm -hmm. um, and he cites evidence about statues of Mercury that were Hermes that were pushed into the ocean at the time of their at the time of their consecration. This wasn't like later Christians who didn't approve of this and mm -hmm. cut off the nose and tossed into the sea. He had a very interesting theory that Hecate is supposed to be the consort to this earlier form of Hermes that we get a version of later that, of course, we get Hesiod gives us our version that we know today. And Homer gives us the version of Hermes that we're all used to. But all these gods and goddesses evolved, just like deities in other cultures. Mm -hmm. They weren't static. Um, same way Yahweh evolved. <laughs> you have this Canaanite storm god in, in Yah, and then you get Yahweh uh, centuries later. But um, he suggested that it's possible that you have a lover counterpart for Hermes, and you find this evidenced um, by the god the grottos for Hermes that were they were said to contain sacred fish that the Greeks very strongly associated with male seed. And they, they saw this as being him being the consort to that goddess who was higher on that, that, mm -hmm. that list in the same way in the Celtic world, we of course have the, the king who is really the consort consort to the earth goddess. So who's the queen, but I just thought that was a really interesting parallel. Well, and also to kind of follow on to what you were saying about the generations being less generational and more just transitions in, I guess, almost levels of energy, you know, the other famous, I guess, consort of Hermes is Aphrodite from, you know, from whose union we get Hermaphrodite. But at the same time, Hermes himself is both hypermasculine and hyperandrogynous. And, um, in an, an, in an almost non-paradoxical way. And, um, you know, it's very frequently you will see Hermes portrayed as 
a as a very feminine body type, sometimes a woman with you know male genitalia, but you see this very very frequently throughout the. I mean, again, going back to the FTD florist, but um, and some of the Nike ads, but you do see that that same idea where I mean, the really the line between Hermes, Hermes and Hermaphrodite, is very very blurry. They're very very blurry. I, I they almost. They almost seem to be the same figure in a lot of ways. Um, and again, that, you know, because there are so many different writers over so many different generations writing these things, different people were seeing different things about it. But um, but I do find that interesting in the idea. And and we again, you do see this in Celtic mythology, but also Mesoamerican mythology and Australian mythology and everywhere else where the the generations continue. And even, uh, even in non-mythological you know the idea in like in in the gale talk where the bloodlines are just kind of blur which is one of the things that makes you know genealogy so damn difficult you know beyond a certain point because you know it's just <laughs> like recycling the same person over and over and over again like santa claus <laughs> yes um i i wanted to go back to highlight one point you made a moment ago, because in alchemy, between whether it is seen as a purely philosophical or a literal turning of lead to gold, um, it seems to be both at various times and depending on where. <laughs> um, but you find by the end of the Renaissance, you find th uh, the three major elements of alchemy being mercury, sulfur, and salt. It was seen as such importance that mercury be involved in the process of alchemy. And you find personifications and woodcuts of Mercurius as the character that comes down to wed two things together. Um, it kind of reminded me, I don't have it with me, but in the, in the Thoth tarot deck, you have the lover's card. It's literally the alchemical wedding that uh, mm -hmm. Lady Harris depicts in right. that card. We have the two lovers together and the two pillars meant to be referencing that specific moment of the alchemical wedding that occurs in the uh, Rosicrucian text. But it's so interesting to see that because Hermes being a part of that from the very beginning, um, the alchemists treated it as absolutely crucial. And I've always pondered and loved picking the brain of other occultists as to how they think, how they think that figures. Speaking of the Thoth tarot deck, I asked Doc to say a few more words on Thoth, or the Egyptian equivalent of Hermes. So Thoth is, of course, Tehuti, the, the Egyptian god of scribal knowledge. So his, when we, we go through uh, calling him out in our various orders, we often have different names for him. So he has, he has some pretty important titles that we're actually, we're actually supposed to uh, bring forth and these are these are mirrored very interestingly in hermes uh orphic hymn but we'll stick with thoth for a second so you have the ibis-headed one the thrice greatest the divine scribe lord of the sacred texts he who numbers the stars he who knows the boundary of the world that's a lot i mean that, those are a lot of associations that you can see how they would have figured thoth in at Tehuti in that particular time and place. So uh, that's something there. The other aspect is you have uh, his consort, Seshut, and then you have her names. You have the sevenfold, seven, so the lady of the sevenfold power, the great archivist, she who inscribes the terms of life. So you have another psychopomp theme. You don't hear much about Seshut as a, as a psychopomp, do you? But it's like she was, the Egyptians clearly thought she was. 
uh, she who inscribes the duration of eternity, lady of the sevenfold powers, maker of everlasting worlds, and she who inscribes the term of life. So you have kind of a mirror of Tehuti Thoth's epithets right there. Um, but yeah, the, those, those are the things that we would see, and specifically that they were equal. There was not any rulership. There was no he owns her or she owns him, but they were considered to be pillars that were completely equidistant. To our knowledge, Thoth was not directly correlated to the planet Mercury, and many planets were at some point likened to forms of Horus in Egypt, but it is possible. After all, deities constantly evolve, and many similar deities become correlated over time as people move from one place to another and bring their gods and hyphens with them. But things can get especially foggy in relation to Egypt because we're still discovering things, important line blocks of hieroglyphics are still being ground up and lost, and a lot of the early translations from Egyptologists of the early Enlightenment can be flawed. Drawing near the end of our show, I've asked our guests where they think we should go to learn more. I would say, and it's not, not Mercury specific, but more generally with the, with the, whole, with the whole concept, I, I, it's right to say it, but the Golden Bough is not a bad place to start. Um, and there are abridged versions of the Golden Bough. You don't need the 8,000 page, whatever, but the abridged uh, Golden Fraser's Golden Bough. And you can get it online for free. There are PDFs of it. Um, Golden Bough is a very good place to start. And also, um, please don't shoot me for saying this, but um, from, a, from a mystical, from a poetic standpoint, I guess, even though Mercury is never mentioned specifically, uh, the White Goddess, the Archetypal Fool and the Archetypal Messenger and the Archetypal Magician, um, just take everything with that Graves writes with the understanding that he was a poet and not a historian or an archaeologist. I would tell anybody starting off with the fascination in Hermes to start, of course, with a, a good translation of the Greek corpus Hermeticum. There is many good translations out there. Uh, the best version I love is one that's simply titled just the Hermetica, and it contains both the perfect discourse as well as the Asclepius discourse that comes after. That is absolutely the first place I would start to get an idea to where Western esotericism mm -hmm. has found and has taken Hermes over the course of 2,500 years. I, could I just tag on to what Doc just said? And you know, if you want a short read that will you know, be with you the rest of your life, but uh, the Emerald Tablet mm. is one page, but it was uh, allegedly written by Hermes. Um, and it is, it is a one page thing that really, if you understand that one page, you understand kind of everything that has been, that was understood about mysticism and magic and spirituality in whatever year that was written. It And we still, I, Doc and I have both quoted from it today, whether we acknowledged it or not, you know, whether we cited it or not, we've both been uh, bouncing back and forth off of the Emerald Tablet all throughout this entire workshop today. So, uh, yeah, go back to that source material. It's 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 a fast read, but it's one you won't finish the rest of your life. That which is above is from which is below, and that which is below is that which is above is on that tablet. That's the OG tablet. I'm going to close today's episode with a bit of classic literature, the Orphic Hymn to Mercury. 
This is an ode in a collection of many attributed to the legendary poet and musician Orpheus. It is meant as an invocation with the fumigation of frankincense and can be read with the Greek or Roman god names. We will read the Greek. And if you would like, see if you can pick up on any of the themes we've mentioned previously. To Hermes Hermes, draw near, and to my prayer incline, Angel of Zeus and Maya's son divine, Studious of contests, ruler of mankind, With heart almighty and a prudent mind, Celestial messenger of various skill, Whose powerful arts could watchful Argus kill, With winged feet tis thine through air to course, O friend of man and prophet of discourse, Great life supporter, to rejoice is thine In arts gymnastic and in fraud divine. With power endued, all language to explain, Of care the loosener, and the source of gain, Whose hand contains of blameless peace the rod, Carution, blessed, profitable God, Of various speech, whose aid in works we find, And in necessities to mortals kind, Dire weapon of the tongue, which men revere, Be present, Hermes, and thy suppliant here, assist my works, conclude my life with peace, give graceful speech, and my memories increase. Thanks for tuning in to Cosmologies. As always, our episode music is by Aaron J. Shea. The words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo. You that way, we this way. Until next time, stay wonderful.